0: Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues, and that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truett, and Sparrow. As they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are. We're back part two Brilliant. of our examination, exegesis, exploration of the nature of walking, not only in its manifestation in our in our lives, as Going back to um, the start of things, but also in the work of Henry David Thoreau and, uh, and w- walking the wild. And so there's one thing I wanted to just say is um, it seems to me that this nature of the part two is kind of uh, woven into that idea that Thoreau had of the loop, the nature of walks as being a loop, of being a coming from starting in a place And going forth and then returning to that same place.
1: To the origin.
0: Yeah. Yeah. and So, you know, like we've come to this. Also, I was thinking, yeah, like, you know, (laughs) the the idea of the monomyth, you know, it's a word that was picked up um, from James Joyce's uh, Finnegan's Wake and in monomyth. Those was picked up it's by one Joseph Campbell <laughs> and made a big thing of. It's the idea that's um, incorporated into The Hobbit, the idea of um, there and back again. Oh. The, the, yeah, something the, happens that causes you to set forth, and then you get to a point and resolve that hmm. instigation and then return to where you came from to tell of it.
2: Yeah.
1: It's,
0: it's the... the um, The heroic heroic journey. That's right. I believe that's another, yeah, that's a coin.
1: Like in uh, Odysseus. Odysseus goes forth to the Trojan War, then he returns. Right.
2: It always starts in the middle of things, and there's some sort of um, provocation and a descent into um, a subterranean world, descent into the underworld, Hmm. usually a cluster of tasks to accomplish. That hmm. have a preternatural quality to them, and then the nostos the return to where one began with this um new ah. knowledge of the world
1: right, and which is sometimes
2: based based on folklore, folkloric
0: stories, vladimir prop, objective structuralism those they're archetypes of the story that we've been telling um for a long time,
1: yeah, and sometimes a kind of tragic return. Yes. Like uh, Odysseus has a kind of triumphant return, but I'm thinking of Gilgamesh who goes forth to try to find the secret of eternal life, fails, comes home and dies. Anyway, that's my memory of the story, which yeah, is like it. the first book, first book ever written has a kind of tragic uh, finale. And,
2: yeah. And according to um Tennyson, yeah. Tennyson's or, or Ulysses, uh, Odysseus becomes bored his, huh. like, and then sets off for this uh, final journey. And I think Dante writes about that's, it as well. This final that's cousin Zaki's, uh
0: cousin Zaki's, uh you know, the Odyssey, a modern sequel. Um, that's his um, his thing, his thing. Yeah, totally. Goes to Antarctica. But the um, thing is, where have we gone? You know, between having set forth and then we had a week interval, I was just wondering about the rhythm of walking and how it's woven into your lives over this past week. And if, in fact, our going forth had had any impact.
1: I do find myself thinking constantly about walking and I do, you know, a small amount of walking. I was thinking today, I I guess I'm, I'm a very literal person and I was just. I just keep coming back to the idea that Thoreau walked, as I said last time, four hours a day or more. And I was thinking, like, what is the proportion with me? You know, maybe 1% of my life I'm outdoors, maybe 10% at the most. Uh But still, you know, like today, I was walking to the bus, back from the bus. I walked a little tiny bit in Kingston through the rain. But was most sort of conscious when I was like in the woods, in this road that goes through the woods, from my house to the bus, thinking it's not much part of my life. It's not a big part of my life, but it is something. A little bump in consciousness, just being a little bit
0: near some uh, fragmentary piece
1: of the forest. Yeah, (laughs) forest. Being between the and where I walk is between the Asopus Creek, yeah, and the mountain. That's yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That's I, the place that I walk mostly,
2: yeah, yeah. How about you, Andrew? Well, I love walking. Um, I try to walk most places hmm. if, if I can pull it off. Um, I will not take the subway or a cab, or I walk a lot. Uh, you <laughs> walk to work? I walked to work. I walk back to work. Uh, a few years ago, on a regular basis, I was um, circumambulating Manhattan Wow! about once every
1: two weeks. You mean yeah. walk the entire yes. uh, outline of Manhattan?
2: Yeah. yeah, I would start maybe um, where I live on the Upper West Side, go to the East Side, around the Battery, and up the West Side.
1: Oh, so you wouldn't go around the entire island?
2: No, I wouldn't go to um, where you were raised in Inwood. It was too far north
1: yeah 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 well the one thing
2: i would posit is uh
0: alfred kazan's uh book a walker in the city and Hmm. how new york is such a great city for long walks but they're principally kind of inner events Hmm. you know there's uh you know they're kind of inner events for me mostly in the city i feel very um in myself sure Hmm. in nature In, do in, you do you walk down? Yeah, I, I walk a lot because I have, a, you know, we have a lot of dogs. But uh, yeah, I took a great walk with um, with Virgil the other day. <laughs> um, we did a loop actually, because I was thinking about I was thinking about Thoreau, and so I did a kind of I, I tried to make a um, more like an ellipsis, um, and went up to the lake that I live up on. Odensasi, Odensasi Ob- Lake, and then, you know, cut across some neighbor's land and went across a swampy area oh. and thought of Thoreau, actually. Yeah, there was a there's a real, um, ecology, a, a swamp, a bog, you know, with the beavers and stuff like that,
2: uh-huh. where I
0: am. And so, you know, connected up close to that and, uh, And then came back home, you know, saw through the trees, my house, you know, a bit of bushwhacking. And it was a good hike. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that word bushwhacking, which is not the word that Thoreau uses. Thoreau says walking. But when I was a young hiker, my friends and I that I hiked with, we would use that term bushwhacking, meaning walking without a trail, which was considered kind of like a higher level of, I think we sort of secretly thought this is like, the greatest hiking is without a trail. Yeah, you know, there's something a little that weak.
0: Bushwhacking. Uh, it reminds me of the uh, the words of Woody Guthrie. You know, huh. there there these words I heard in in the bur- in my burning bush. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: so uh, to get reoriented, where were we? And let's keep let's press
1: on, you guys. I mean, there was one thing that I was going to say as a sort of introduction, which is uh, Andrew was quoting the Thoreau's statement about the walking essay, where he says, I regard this as a sort of introduction to all that I may write hereafter. Yes. And then I found myself, like, obsessively wondering, well, what did he write hereafter? So the problem is that... um Walking is, it's composed, it's first delivered as a lecture, as we said last time in 1951. It's, you know, published in, a, I mean, in 1851, and then it's published in 1862 after Thoreau is dead. So let's say 1851 is the uh, com- composition date of it. So here's the works that were written after that. An excursion to Canada, slavery in Massachusetts, Walden, which is 1854. And then there's three uh, essays about John Brown. Yeah. A plea for Captain John Brown, remarks after the hanging of John Brown, the last days of John Brown.
2: Yeah.
1: And then autumnal tints, wild apples, colon, the history of the apple tree. Now, Now we're already up to posthumous works. The Fall of the Leaf, 1863, Excursions, 1863, Life Without Principle, 1863, Night and Moonlight, the Highland Light, and the Maine Woods. Maine Woods, I think, is a fairly, what's the word, canonical work of Thoreau's 1864. Oh, and then Cape Cod, which I read, uh, is 1865. Uh, what's so,
0: intense is the, uh, you know, within the body of his work that um, he was very politically active you know, which one doesn't get a jag of in this essay, Walking. But also that, you know, like Walking, he also wrote one of the most famous essays of the um, 19th century, which was, of course, Civil Disobedience.
1: Right.
2: Don't you think there's a political dimension to the um, essay, Walking? Oh, definitely. No doubt. Like
0: a very core fundamental. And also to keep in mind, his residence in Walden had already gone down. Right. He, you know, walking is something that came out of Walden. You know, Walden is actually his crucible, you know, in many ways. But walking is nevertheless a direct articulation of the foundational structure of what he learned collaborating at Walden Pond. Right. But I think it'd be interesting to do civil disobedience in conjunction with walking, like to take those two essays and see what they have to say to each other and the kind of vim diagram between them, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Well, and also, you know, walking is about being outside of society. You're not even on the roads. You're not in the towns. You're kind of refusing to obey the laws that are set down by the traditions of travel. You're walking off the beaten path like civil disobedience is walking politically off the beaten path, if that is not too labored a metaphor.
0: (laughs) Oh, hallelujah. Yeah, definitely.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I felt that that was one thing that I I think was maybe a problem with what we were talking about last time as we were tending towards thinking of Thoreau as this kind of hermit mystic who's in this ecstatic relationship to nature, which apparently he was. But then he's also this highly engaged political figure because the Civil Disobedience essay, of course, but we have to say this because some people listening to this are possibly 14 years old. That essay inspires uh, Mahatma Gandhi, which in turn inspires Martin Luther King. So it's one of the most important political essays ever written. As you were saying, and at the same
0: time, a very anarchic um, essay because it questions the very validity of the state itself.
1: Mm. Yeah, I don't remember it well, but no, it was but
0: low lives on. That's, you know, culture is the sum of everything learned forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Oliver Wendell Holmes said.
1: Really? Yeah. <laughs> the
0: other thing I, I learned is that the, uh, the scholar appreciates his his or her uh, ability to forget.
1: Huh.
0: You know, you forget the dross.
1: Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. So, I used to have uh, this theory. I had a theory about <laughs> every so often I would lose my journal with all my poems in it. And it would really devastate me, you know, when I was 26 years old. And then I gradually decided that all the good poems, you'll remember. You know, the ones that are worth remembering, they'll stay.
0: Yeah. Henry Miller said something similar.
1: <laughs>
0: um, yeah, he said you can never lose, you never lose an idea. Huh.
2: huh. Yeah.
0: So the uh, the thing is, I, I just, uh, shouldn't we drill back in? I mean, where I left off was at a very interesting point. And I think uh-huh. this may relate to Henry Miller in that um, Thoreau states in the essay, and this is a very provocative statement that I want you guys to connect with. In literature, it is only the wild that attracts us. Mm. Dullness is but another name for tameness. So yeah, I just read that. literature has is capitalized mm. in literature. It is only the wild that attract us, attracts us. Dullness is but another name for tameness. And just you know, what do you does that ricochet around
1: for you? It's a radical statement. I mean, it does make me think. Well, there is sort of politics, kind of hidden, embedded, you might say, in walking. At least in this case, a kind of literary politics. You know, saying in a way, the more crazier writers. Are the best writers. He mentions Hamlet at one point, I think right around there. Uh, Hamlet, I think, and the Iliad as examples of, you know, wild and crazy literature that that has a power to startle you.
0: Yeah. He doesn't use some um, crazy, but he, you know, the next yeah. line is, "It is the uncivilized, free and wild thinking in Hamlet and the Iliad." In all the scriptures and mythologies, hmm. not learned in the schools that delights us. Yeah. And, I, and we could go on. You know, this is a, this is a, um, fundamentally terrific, lots of good sentences. Uh, then he goes on, a truly good book is something as natural and as unexpectedly and unaccountably fair and perfect as a wild flower. Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> Isn't that discovered,
0: great? Yeah. And then he goes on, discovered on the prairies of the West or in the jungles of the East. So, again, there is a political and kind of that Spenglerian shadow, you know, which he anticipated, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And then he <laughs> writes, genius is a light which makes the darkness visible like a lightning flash. Now, that's an Adorno. You can cite Adorno. Adorno cites that which chance shatters the temple of knowledge itself, and not a taper lighted at the hearthstone of the race, which pales before the light of common day, the hearthstone of the race.
1: Yeah, I noticed that phrase. Hearthstone. What is a hearthstone? It's the stone that's in the hearth?
2: It's a stone on top of the hearth that um, heats up. Oh, and
1: there, you use it for cooking.
2: You can um, boil water on it. You can put um, sodden, frozen clothing on it. You can put huh. hands over it. It's <laughs> related to the heart, obviously. You know the, the heart, heart,
1: the hearth,
0: the house of the house of the rising race. I of the heart lighted at the hearthstone of the race. He's talking is about race? is that like people or is it like the hustle?
1: I think he's talking about lighting a candle, that you light a candle on the uh, hearth. That's what I took it to mean.
0: Which shatters, wait, which per- shatters the temple of knowledge itself. We can uh-huh. all relate to that. Yeah, and, it's very and interesting. Not, he- and not a temp, not a taper lighted at the hearthstone of the race. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which pales before the light of common day. So he's making a, a reference to Plato, whom you know, the allegory of the cave. Right. Yeah. Which I think you referenced, Sparrow. Actually.
1: I don't remember referencing. Yeah, I think he's saying oh, does. You, yeah. You, write, you light a candle at your in your fireplace, and it's bright inside your house, but compared to the sun, it's nothing. So he's saying kind of like domestic life compared to wildness is the same as a little candle compared to the sun something like that something And really in a sense civilization compared to wildness is like a a candle compared to the sun compared yeah the wildness is a thousand times greater than civilization but then you know and then when you're just thinking all right you know he's a luddite He's against all whatever anything made by humans. No, he is including uh Homer and Shakespeare as among the wild things. You know, they don't count as civilization. They count as sort of anti-civilization. So it's he's got a very kooky uh you know, by contemporary anarchist standards. You know, there's not you don't mean too many like street punks who are like, well, civilization sucks, except for Homer, you know.
0: <laughs> well, no, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that at all. I mean, I think that he goes on to make a more emphatic anchor into the primordial Um if, in that he goes on to say, you know, I do not know of any poetry to quote. Which adequately adequately expresses this yearning for the wild. Mm. Approached from this side, the best poetry is tame. I do not know where to find in any literature, ancient or uh, or modern, any account that contents me that nature with which even I am acquainted.
2: Uh, um, and then
0: he goes on and dow- and and you know pours some ga- gasoline on Augustine and Elizabethan age and Grecian, the only, and then he comes down to mythology and he talks about mythology as being something
2: worth uh, holding on to. Does anyone know what Thoreau's take on Walt Whitman was?
1: Good know, question.
2: No, Emerson, you know, that, that story is well told. Huh? Emerson, Emerson was a, a big fan of um, Whitman's work, but after Whitman sent it to him, right yeah i mean uh, but whitman uh it's 1855 1855 is the first edition of yeah of myself the 1855
1: edition yeah so thoreau 35. is almost dead uh, he's gonna die in yeah, 1860 right
0: yeah he had another six years there could have been i bet he read it though i bet he got a hold of a copy i bet it was uh passed before him
1: i mean i interesting was thinking, question well,
0: that's actually good that would be interesting
1: Emerson. I was gonna quote uh, Thoreau's poetry because uh, you know Thoreau's, poet, Thoreau's poetry is weird and kind of interesting, but pretty square. You know, it doesn't sound Mark much Rowe. like uh, Whitman. You know,
2: like um, Emerson. Mark I, I, I feel Marlborough Road is
0: the, uh, the the poem that, um, that Thoreau Did embedded it? into this essay.
1: Right. Oh, right. That, that he wrote. wrote.
0: Yeah, he wrote. Yeah. huh. Yeah, that and, uh, just, You know, that it's like, so in it. that's a whole, that's a whole line, you know, that's a whole line of uh, fire and smoke on the horizon. You know, that's a real interesting place to go, just to look at that poem and, you know, what hmm. he's trying to, try to puzzle it out.
1: Yeah, maybe we should do that. Read yeah. the I don't have it in front of me.
0: I did just in this part also want to point out a, a reference, um, that Olson picked up from this essay. If I may, it's, it's just brief. And this is what Thoreau writes, um, who derived his words as often as he used them, transplanted them to his page with earth adhering to their roots.
1: Huh. What's that Olson you're quoting?
0: No, no, that's Thoreau, and Olson, as I recall, you know, says, you know, leave the roots on, you know, when you write, leave the roots on, uh-huh. so you show where it came from.
2: Uh-huh. Uh,
0: that's a a paraphrase, but uh-huh. uh, that's that's about what Olson wrote, and he picked it up from Thoreau. There's all kinds of glimmerings like that you can see in this essay.
1: Yeah,
2: hmm. I'm noticing here that there's some Chaucer in Walking as well there's a, a couplet quoted from Canterbury Tales that I missed last time I read through it. Hmm. Hmm. But it's inserted into the text without any sort of setup. It's interesting. What oh, is it? What's here that? it is. Um, so this is Thoreau's language, and then I'll let you know when I'm, when I'm moving into the Chaucer quotation. Not a flock of wild geese cackles over our town, but it, to some extent, unsettles the value of real estate here. And if I were a broker, I should probably take that disturbance into account. And then, without any sort of um segue, there are the two lines from the Canterbury Tales. Then longen folk to goon on pilgrimages, and palmares for to seek in strands strones. I'm In the be
0: with the shortest sort that the drog of march hath passed to the ruta and bathed every vein in swishlicker of which were to is the Fleur. is the you know from the beginning of Canterbury yeah.
2: Tales
1: the prologue I think it's yeah it's
2: the pil- yeah the prologue yeah the pilgrimage interesting yeah There's I guess so that's, that's a theme throughout walking right is the pilgrimage he refers to the holy land. In yeah. the final paragraph.
1: Right, yeah.
2: Which again is, I think, I just can't get over the parallels between walking and the final paragraph of, um, The Great Gatsby. Oh. We've mentioned so many texts that walking seems to have influenced Adorno, Charles Olson, F. Mm. Fitzgerald. Do you want to hear the two? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so let's oh, I, let's hear the, uh definitely. Um, parallel, the parallel the... isn't necessarily yeah. a smoking gun, but tell me what you think. Which yeah. do you want here first? The Thoreau. Here it is. So we saunter toward the Holy Land, till one day the sun shall shine more brightly than ever he has done, shall perchance shine into our minds and hearts, and light up our whole lives with a great awakening light, as warm and serene and golden as on a bankside in autumn <laughs> i don't remember now that might not be the paragraph that i had in mind now um, that's the those are the last words of
0: the essay yes yeah and then so the fantastic uh, on, on a on a bankside in autumn warm and serene and golden it's
2: yeah so, so let's then hear. okay um one thing to point out is that the uh, some of these images are distributed across the final few paragraphs of The Great Gatsby, but I'll just read the, um, the, the final paragraph. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgiastic future, that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther. And one fine morning, so we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. I'm a little less convinced at this moment having <laughs> the, the two together, but. Oh, no, no,
0: no, no. Well, I mean, uh, those words are, uh, uh, you know, um, ho- you know, big home runs, ceaselessly into the past. Yeah.
1: Well, there's something about the tone that does, yeah. maybe the exact phrasing is different. I, it reminds me, I had this, I was going to say this it last is. time, yeah. I had this professor. I got a master's in creative writing from City College in 1985, and there was yeah. a professor named Mark Mursky. I just remembered his name just now, and he used to say, "If you want muscular prose, read, yeah. Thoreau. read
0: Thoreau."
1: And I never forgot that.
0: Huh.
1: Muscular for prose. There's an outdated term, you know, patriarchal term, but it's true. <laughs> And I think that Fitzgerald maybe, I don't know if Fitzgerald read that essay, but there is some affinity.
0: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I was just thinking about, like, beating on the past, and I just don't, I'm not, I don't really feel that way strongly. What do you I, I'm mean? not sure. And, and when he means past, he means some kind of, like, personal psychological past, I suppose. He doesn't mean the past, like, going back to plasticine man thing sort of
1: thing
2: right isn't it about disappearing into history
1: you're talking about fitzgerald yeah yeah what do you mean disappearing into history
2: um disappearing
0: into the past like the idea of history yeah i guess i'm read it again
1: i've just lost it i'm sorry
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's gone into the past
1: (laughs) yeah it receded into the past (laughs) I mean, I thought it just meant something like poor Gatsby just spent his whole life trying to recover this love in his past that was unrecoverable. You can't go back to that moment you fell in love with your girlfriend right. 40 years ago. That's not attainable. It's what a
0: kind of gothic guy. Uh, you can't go home again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and there are people like Gatsby who spend their whole lives tragically trying to recapture some moment, you know, or maybe there aren't people like that. But Gatsby is that way.
0: I think a lot of people are that way. Sparrow, I do. I, I think a lot of people are actually that way.
1: Yeah, maybe. It's
0: pretty so. That way? Why? Are you that way? I, I'm not, as I said. I, I don't, as I said, I find the statement a little baffling in terms of my attitude, for sure. I'm falling forward. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean that's that. what walking is, right? <laughs> it's a state of uh, like a rhythm of standing and falling um, that we've regularized physio- physiognomically, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. It's funny because I personally. And it's personally, something that ties us to our beginning, you know, let's face it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I personally believe very strongly in walking backwards. Like, I think it's really good for people to walk backwards. And I try to spend a little bit of time every day walking backwards. But I always forget. But once in a while, maybe once a week, I remember it. I just take like a few steps backwards, wow. three or four steps backwards. But I feel like it does something hard to describe Some it like reprograms your mind first of all you're you're backing up into uh an unknown you don't know whether someone's behind you with a knife whether you're going to hit the wall you know so you it it's there's a level of uncertainty to it and it's breaking your pattern you know
0: yeah i would also posit there's an element of surrender
1: yes good way to put it yeah and then there's something you can kind of play with like in your living room you know i would tell our readers our listeners at home you know just try it like stand a few feet from your wall and just walk backwards and then try to do it quickly and and just of course you're not looking backwards you're just looking forwards and just experience that the motion backwards i think it's very un-american to walk backwards
0: well i think it's a little bit of a crack uh into the nature of the wild (laughs) is instability. Hmm, hmm, hmm. You know, nature is not an algorithm. You know, it evolves through breaking patterns.
1: Yes, one of the things I was thinking about this week, when I was thinking about walking, I had like a period of about an hour. I was going to the Woodstock Film Festival. A friend of mine gave me a ride. I got there an hour early, so I had kind of an hour to do nothing. So I started walking down this little road, and next to the road was a forest. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be like uh, Thoreau and walk through the forest. And then I had two problems. One, I'm worried I'm going to break my ankle, you know, just walking straight through the woods. And okay. second of all, uh, Lyme disease, mm. you know. So it was like I didn't I ended up walking, you know, whatever, three feet into the wild. But then I didn't. But that instability, I was started thinking about Thoreau's ankles. He must have had incredible ankles. You know, like, we we've all been ruined great. by these uh streets and roads and floors that we walk on. Yeah. We need like, no mobility in our ankles. But like you his Imagine for a listening. moment like
0: Thoreau's thighs. <laughs> <because> <laughs> it's massive. I mean, you know, when you walk a lot, your thighs particularly just get like mon- you know, get
2: strong and your
1: calves, I think yeah. they
2: do. I was thinking Abs. these rich ragamuffin Nineteenth century aristocrats always had great calves.
1: Ah, really?
2: Yeah. Well based based upon paintings of the body. Huh. Because, now hello. one thing I one thing I wanted to
0: bring up also relative to walking, you know, rather than the marbling of uh, aristocratic flesh. Huh. Is that is the origin of the word walking, which is actually interesting. It's a fusion between the old English "wilken," which means to toss, roll, move over, and an old Norse word. Mm. Valka. Valka. Which means drag about. Which is walking. You know, we're dragging about. And we don't think about this, but we're dragging about these torsos, you know. Like mm-hmm. the process of walking is dragging about these torsos through this process of um, tossing, mm-hmm. rolling over, moving over. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of mysterious, but you know, this falling thing of the two legs.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is there a is- kind of dance like quality to walking and a walk like quality to dancing that in a way that's something that I, try to work on actually in my life when I, as I walk through my house every day I try to remember besides walking backwards I try to turn it into a little dance my my daily walk I've written about this you know as sometimes I write these essays here's how to age gracefully here's how to avoid aging now that I'm old I occasionally write these essays and one of my theories is to turn your life into a dance <laughs> i like that idea definitely it's not something that thoreau exactly discusses he no, seems like and it's guy. an interesting
0: question i would think along with um whether thoreau read leaves of grass hmm. is um did thoreau do much dancing was he much of a dancer was he a was he considered to be a good dancer
1: i was going to talk about his uh you know, just based on reading Wikipedia, his they have a little section on his sexuality, which is highly mysterious. Oh,
0: yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. yeah. That he's is, either asexual,
1: hard. heterosexual, or homosexual. And there's like sort of three schools of thought on it. And no one, there's no, he doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have children, he has no apparent partners, uh, romantic partners. I think he's just kind of asexual. Yeah. I mean...
0: But the one thing, getting back to the essay, and in relation to dancing, there's also this quote, and I wanted to ask you, uh, Andrew, relative to to Bob Dylan, actually. Oh, great. (laughs) In short, all good things are wild and free. There is something in a strain of music, whether produced by an instrument or by the human voice, Take the sound of a bugle on a summer night, for instance, which by its wildness, to speak without satire, reminds me of the cries emitted by wild beasts in their native forests. It is huh. so much of their wildness as I can understand. But this idea of um, the strain of music, I was just wondering if, you know, Bob Dylan had a certain degree of sort of participation. And I would go back to this idea of the fourth estate Hmm. to the wild people, to this fourth estate within the U S within a structure of society.
2: Hmm.
0: What's your question exactly? Well, I mean, whether Bob Dylan has a, has a connection to such a um, thing in music,
1: this kind of wildness
0: to be a certain strain of music. Hmm. Um, to be like an instrument or by singing, by the voice, take the sound of a bugle in a, in a summer night, for instance. And then this idea of like a, a music, a form of music that is synonymous with the cries emitted by the wild beasts in their native forests in relation to the human
2: psychosm. Well, an American I, human psychosm i do I do remember from Bob Dylan's memoir, Chronicles, published in two thousand four that he describes his initial attraction to the voice of Johnny Cash um in terms reminiscent of what what you just um just read because he says that the appeal for him was the fact that um if Johnny Cash were singing in the nineteen sixties or fifties. Or if you were an Iron Age caveman, the sound sound would have been the same. (laughs) Something along those lines. I wish I had Chronicles with me. I don't. But it's a beautiful quotation that speaks very much to um, the the language that you just read from Thoreau.
1: And also Dylan. uh, Super
2: high praise. That's super high praise. That's super high praise. And absolutely well deserved. I I think Johnny Cash has that sort of voice. It resonates with people.
1: And I was thinking, uh, because of my encyclopedic knowledge of Dylan lyrics, uh, and also because it's about me, and I try to harmonize with songs the lonesome sparrow sings. Is that right? That's from Gates of Eden.
2: Oh, Gates where, of Eden.
1: Okay. Yeah. Where Dylan is, you know, sort of explicitly saying that he's singing like a wild bird.
0: Hmm. Oh, nice sparrow. Yeah. Memory. Yeah.
1: And also, I think, like for me, I don't know, a lot of my feelings about Dylan come from his harmonica playing, particularly during his, you know, high period, which for me was somewhere around just before he went electric, actually, you know, maybe 65, 66. And if that, uh, what is it called? The uh, Albert Hall concert, which is miss-titled, you know, where he's playing these incredibly wild and kind of eccentric brilliant uh harmonica lines that are a little bit like wild beast singing to me
0: continuing <laughs> on with that thread you know passing further into um into the essay i would bring up this this other thing that i thought was very interesting in terms of that bardic yap you know, <laughs> whitman he, he writes um there are other letters for the child to learn than those which Cadmus invented. <laughs> Spaniards have a good term to express this wild and dusty knowledge. Gramatica <laughs> parda, tawny grammar. Tawny. A kind of mother wit derived from that same leopard to which I have referred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's super interesting just in terms of the relationship of, of the Spaniard to a term to express this wild and dusky knowledge, which is commonly associated now with duende. Uh huh. Lorca's duende is actually of a Spanish origin and is this wild and dusky knowledge, which is, I believe, what the road you know from the perspective of the 1850s you know whatever you know was was referring to huh. it'd be interesting to see if that's
1: valid but duende isn't that this sort of what tragic awareness of death or something
0: Duendes, it would be a good podcast
2: <laughs> what is duende would be a great podcast The translation is a tragic awareness of death
1: i mean that's what of i death. thought it had something to do
0: with well duende is a a, a mountain spirit that inhabits huh. trees oh. and is embodied in putting on the mask of death and then speaking through it huh. hmm. yeah you're right hmm. but duende would be a great podcast we should <laughs> act with that
1: but you don't really get that sense of uh the imminence of death in, uh, in Thoreau. At least in this essay, I don't see it. It's, no, it seems very like green and alive. Very like ever. Well, I would,
0: I would posit that you can hear it a little bit in Johnny
2: Cash. Ha, ha,
1: ha. Yeah, yeah. I think so.
2: But Sparrow, that's an interesting observation. There's an absence of, um, pathos or a heavy, lugubrious awareness of death in walking. It's pretty sunny, even though he writes about in rainy, uh, rainy weather
1: and uh, swamps and swamps. He's really celebrates swamps.
2: But it's forward thinking and splashed with light and green. Right. Wouldn't you say? The it- yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe that's what transcendentalism is. I mean, I personally find uh, Emerson too sunny. You know, maybe because of my own, whatever, tortured relationship with the New Age. But it's just, that's also in Emerson a kind of optimism, universal optimism about everything. It's less apparent in Thoreau, but then, you know, where exactly do you see pessimism? Well, a little bit in his relationship to civilization.
0: The the one thing I would say, and is a a marked distinction between Emerson and Thoreau, is even though they took a lot of walks together and they did take a lot of walks together, Emerson was crazy about walking mm. uh, for Emerson. His principal thesis is, and I quote, the infinitude of the thinking man. And he huh. uses the word man, you know, broadly speaking, but mm. the in- infinitude of of a, of a person in thought in mm. the infinitude of thought. Preferably hmm. seated in a chair, you know, <laughs> and, you know, some sort of like, you know, trigger. I don't know. You know, Emerson would sit in chairs in his black suit, smoking and thinking and writing and reading books. God, infinite library, an enormous library.
2: I wonder how much. Um, And this is a question that someone who knew about this topic, no doubt, could, could answer. Maybe one of you. But to what degree was, um, thorough reading the British Romantic poets who were quite invested in huh. walking? I know, um, Angus Fletcher, the literary scholar, has this whole thesis that Wordsworth poems are paced to walking.
1: <laughs>
2: and then there's John Clare, the great walking, mm. high romantic British poet. But, um, mm. those folks don't appear. I don't think, in, in Walking, the essay, just, uh, just an observation.
0: The basic premise of poetic form is based on walking.
1: Huh.
0: The idea of, of lines, of verse. The word verse means to turn. And it's mm. based on plowing mm. fields, walking behind a, um, an animal with mm. a plow and turning the plow it's it's part of the end of our great migrations the great period of human walking Mm. uh, of Mm. ways of life that were based on migratory patterns right and the beginning of yeah the beginning of farming man you know going back and forth the stanza comes from the word stand um, You know, which is also, as we've discussed, intimately related to walking. But civilization and poetry on paper is is a form of standing versus walking, hmm. the whole basis of staying in one place. That seems really interesting. Did you make that up, or I'm kind of making it up on the fly? But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but those things are true. Stanza and verse, and yeah, yeah no. and
1: also the way. The way a line of poetry goes back and forth, you read from the left to right, then you go to the next line, is a little bit the way you plow a field. Not that I really know about how to plow a field, but it looks to me the same way you would plow a field.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Versus uh, plowing the ocean.
1: <laughs> <laughs> who, who are the lake poets? Because I, in this quote I have from Thoreau, he does mention the lake poets. He says, English literature from the days of the minstrels to the lake poets, Chaucer and Spencer and Milton, and even Shakespeare included, breathes no quite fresh and in this sense wild strain. Huh. So the, the lake poets are the romantics, aren't they?
0: I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. But the, he's saying that they don't breathe this romantic strain.
1: The wild strain, yeah.
0: They do not. Yeah. He finds them... Not quite.
1: What? Yeah. He says, it is an essentially tame and civilized literature reflecting Greece and Rome. Her wilderness is a green wood, her wild man a Robin Hood, thus violating the rule against rhyming in prose Mm -hmm. that they teach you in uh, whatever that is, Strunk and White. Uh-huh. There is plenty of genial love of nature, but not so much of nature herself. I, those
0: are damning words.
1: Yeah. Yeah. These are radical. I mean, what's interesting is, uh, to me, as someone that like writes thousands of poems, is it, it, the whole essay does seem to be on some level a sort of call for a new literature, a kind of a demand to, to reinvent World literature, especially American literature,
2: which is what Emerson calls for in his essay of the poet.
1: Hmm.
0: Desire and 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 what Walt Whitman sought to answer. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um. Yeah. But I, I I totally find this essay to be a profound instigation toward a new literate. Sure, to, toward new literature, toward an infinitude of literatures, an infinitude of experiential, experimental works. I mean, that's what's kind Within of in the 10 mile radius. But we're yeah, like, that's the Olson trope also.
1: But Thoreau, you know, you read him and you kind of feel like he's saying like some modern new age, you know, Ramdas, Or whatever, who the latest New Age craze is, uh, you know, Eckhart Tolle or something like, don't, uh, don't, don't write, don't think, just exist, just experience, just be in the moment. But no, he's calling for a literature. I think he does believe in writing. He's kind of a writer who's against writing. But is also sort of demanding some kind of revolution in writing. It's not enough to just sit and stare at a chipmunk. You know, he seems to be saying that we should make some kind of works of art.
2: Should keep some sort of record.
0: Yeah. Which but also did. to to be politically active, Sparrow.
1: Yeah, good point. You know,
0: I you know that's also a strong current of his of his practice of his of his poetics
1: i mean he was according to wikipedia he he was basically the person that defended john brown when nobody else would defend him i i heard i read somewhere he was the first person to defend uh john brown so john brown is like essentially like a violent revolutionary he's kind of like the black panthers of his time who's like i'm just gonna start an insurrection kill a bunch of slave owners, and free all the slaves. That's my plan. And Thoreau is like, this guy is a hero. And, you know, the rest of the abolitionists were distancing themselves from him, from John Brown, saying, well, you know, that's not exactly what we intended. Thoreau was like, no. uh,
0: He was also, in the newspapers of the time, depicted as a wild man. Mm. John yeah. yeah, and the and yeah. the John and Brown was type, you know, bleh, illustrations of him, you know, with the big beard and the wild hair.
1: Yes, yeah. and wild art. eyes.
0: Yeah, those crazed eyes. Yeah. Yeah. In Kedu, and I think maybe Thoreau met him. is that the name of Gilgamesh's friend? Enkidu. Enkidu is his uh, friend, his wild
1: man friend. Right. Right. Yeah, but it's interesting that Thoreau, and also the Mexican War, that he wouldn't pay taxes for the Mexican War. So Thoreau is like, you know, his politics, people are always saying, and I'm always saying, well, you have to understand the politics of the time, like Lincoln was a racist, everyone was a racist. But Thoreau was about 150 years ahead of his time.
2: Well, that's how my Americanist friend described walking as a response to the tortured 1850s, that it can't be understood without a consciousness of the Civil War, that he was hmm. advocating for this contem- contemplative way of being that would somehow uh, assuage or improve the intractable political problems if people hmm. were realized and more engaged with the, uh, the ecosystem that that would help matters politically.
1: Seems a little idealistic.
2: Marianne Williamson, is that her name? Believe, similar. What do you mean? No, um, who's the president of New
1: Age? Yeah, president? that's her name, Marianne Williamson.
2: I don't really know anything about her, I'm just, I'm just playing around. <laughs> Marianne Williamson is Sparrow's nemesis,
0: Andrew. <laughs> uh,
2: sorry, I have a question, um, maybe to wrap things up, and perhaps you two will resist this insertion. But I was, I'm um, curious about, the status of walking now. I mean, of course we bad to essentialize or paint with broad brushstrokes, but why the heck not? Where where do you see walking now? What what sort of does it have culturally um, beyond your own personal experience of it? How does it come up? How is it represented? Any any thoughts on that? That rather um, open-ended prompt? Yeah, I, I have kind
0: of a strong um resonance for me in it. It's um it's in the Museum of Natural History and it's and it's a um diorama that doesn't exist anymore. And it's it's from Tanzania. Mm-hmm. And it was Mary Leakey discovered these footprints in Tanzania in 1977. And the diorama, which you may have seen. Is of these two human, two um human forms, a man and a woman, or a male and a female, walking together um, in the sand of this Tanzanian landscape, with a volcano in the in the way distance, hmm. and. There's for me walking goes back to our beginning you know
2: Hmm.
0: 2.5 million years ago this idea of of coming erect damn Hmm. i'm pretty
2: sure that that diorama is still at the museum of natural history
0: it's not it's not dude it's gone i'm pretty sure i think it got moved it got like i think it had some juice and they took the two figures and did something with them and and that's it. But it's that's a very poignant, like uh, primordial experience of human beings walking, hmm. but, uh, hmm. and particularly poignant. This kind of, uh, I think, they were echoing sort of an Adam and Eve thing, and it and it underscores my contention that every footprint, like every handprint, is a
2: poem. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I, I I love that. It makes me think of the the. Paleolithic cave art that you hmm. we went to see in the south of France with those handprints, 15,000-year-old huh. handprints from children. Huh. Oh, yeah? With the cave wall. Huh. Huh. And I, I, the first thing I thought was that th- this was indeed a poem.
1: Oh, uh-huh. a poem. It's funny because I, I use a voice-activated computer, and um, and I'm always saying the word poems. You know, uh, or poem. And my computer is always writing palm, P-A-L-M, instead of palm. Ah, Yeah. It maybe has that same way of thinking as you guys are having. But Hmm.
2: in terms of the status of walking, I just wanted to point out that um, even though it's near and dear to my own spirituality, in this convenience culture that we live in, it's often seen as um, either a poor man's endeavor out of necessity, mm. something senior citizens do um for leisure mm. um in or,
1: shopping centers
2: yes in shopping centers exactly early morning shopping centers or a consequence of geopolitical upheaval in the movements and migrations of the refugee huh. i don't really um encounter many um i guess um positive representations of it or you or know what or,
1: happened yeah you know what happened to me today is i was I was talking about how I was walking from the bus to my home and from my home to the bus, and I yeah. forgot till this moment that the last time I was walking in my life, you know, which was at around six thirty tonight, I was walking home, you know about a quarter mile, maybe less, and this guy stopped his car, he was going the opposite way as me, and he said, "Are you okay?" It was like. <laughs> Exactly. I said, exactly. yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? And he said, thank you. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. But it was like, he just thought I was crazy, homeless, in trouble. Uh, my car had stalled. I don't, you know. Sparrow, <laughs> Sparrow, praise the Lord. He
0: was recognizing you as a member of
2: the fourth estate. Yeah. Sparrow, Sparrow. In one of my long New York City walks recently, a relative called me and asked, what are you doing? And I told him, and he had the exact same response. Are you okay?
1: Oh, right. Like, are you divorcing your wife?
2: Yeah. <laughs> is, everything, is everything? Why wrong?
1: else would a guy take a walk?
2: I said, everything is fine. He said, what, are you just walking aimlessly, was his follow-up question.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: And I was struck by that. I find it emblematic. <laughs> Henry David Thoreau would be morose to know.
1: Uh-huh. Oh, you know, it's funny. I was going to say, As- you know, <laughs> the state of walking is in very good shape because of podcasts, and then I remembered, oh yeah, we are now making a podcast.
0: We can have some uh some cerebellums. do we have <laughs> Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.